Hello there, welcome to another CRISPR Journal podcast in our latest mini-series supported by Horizon. I'm Kevin Davis, the executive editor of the CRISPR Journal. Our topic today is CRISPR safety or safe CRISPR. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Samira Kiani, who is an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Hi, Samira. Hi, Kevin. How are you? I'm well. Thanks so much for joining us. Tell us first a little bit about your background. You're an MD, I recall. Yes. And uh, you spent some uh, important years kind of getting immersed in CRISPR in George Church's lab in Boston. Yes. So my background is MD and I was trained as a you know medical doctor in Iran. And then I moved to the US and obviously fell in love with the field of synthetic biology yeah. and had an opportunity to spend some years of postdoc research in MIT. And actually the majority of my research was done with Ron Weiss lab at MIT Synthetic Biology Center. And I was collaborating with George Church Lab during those years. So mm. my direct PI was Ron Wise, but obviously lots of collaboration with Church Lab. Yeah. And back in 2016, I got a faculty position and I started my own lab at Arizona State University using the CRISPR technology and combining it with the design principles of synthetic biology to actually develop what I call synthetic CRISPR-based gene circuits. And the idea was to use this for controllable and safer gene therapies that we can talk about later more. And then recently, yeah. I have moved to University of Pittsburgh, Department of Pathology, which gave us an opportunity to expand and really connect more with clinicians and physicians in order to explore the translational aspects of our work. And now I'm here. And so the move to Pittsburgh, uh, which I think was culminated uh, at the beginning of this year, was that to get greater access to medical colleagues and turn your research into more of a clinical direction? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I believe that's a critical point for the evolution of both synthetic biology and CRISPR-based uh, work. So that's why I wanted to be close to clinicians. And so you get the position at Pittsburgh, you're setting up your lab and recruiting uh, the next generation of students and postdocs, and then the pandemic hits. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. So I started my lab in January, and it took us, obviously, some time in order to be up and running. So around mid-February, we were just so excited to start the work. And two, three weeks later, we had to shut down the lab. And since then, we are all working from home. So that's unfortunate. I'm not sure how big your group is right now, but how do you get them to maximize their efficiency and creativity during this uh, time that they're shut out of the lab? What sort of things can they do that perhaps they didn't have the luxury of the time to do under more normal circumstances? Yeah, so there are like three different things that we are focusing right now. Some of the students who were kind of new to lab, I have asked them to take this opportunity and read papers and come up with the ideas about the project that they will be doing. And for some other students, we had some, you know, papers out, there were a revision, so they were busy of just like addressing the revision. Hopefully at that point, we didn't have to do much bench work. So it was like easy to address when you're not in lab. And some other people are actually dealing with lots of data that we had gathered over the years, like high throughput data, RNA-seq, DNA-seq data, that they have been piled up, but no one had the time to actually go through the data and dig information. So we are actually spending a lot of time on actually going back to those data and evaluating those. 
They're busy. I mean, yeah. I don't think that you're less busy at this point. Hopefully by the time this airs, you might uh, be able to set foot back in the lab again. Um, yeah. so let's talk about your actual work and expertise in the CRISPR field. Sort of the overarching banner of your new PIT lab page, I think it has the title Safe CRISPR. What do you mean by Safe CRISPR? The idea of Safe CRISPR for me started while I was in Ron's lab. And, you know, it was a personal kind of experience and interest. It started with me, my dad, around that time that I was a postdoc in Ron's lab, was suffering from pancreatic cancer. Mm. And as you know, pancreatic cancer is one of those cancers that there's not much option for therapy. So I was obviously into finding out what kind of, you know, clinical trials are there. And at that point, I was interested in CAR T-cell therapy because it had some positive results in some other cancers. But I also at the same time noticed that for many people who are not actively in the system, have insurance or have access to these type of trials, it's a long waiting list. So for my dad, it was about two, three years. And by that time, I mean, obviously he passed away. That made me think about what we could do with these novel biological therapy, that they can be faster accessible to the patients in need. So that's when the idea of the CRISPR and combination with synthetic biology hit me for developing safer and controllable therapies. So I knew that if, for instance, something like CRISPR was to be used in patients for gene therapy, we had to deal with lots of safety issues, including, you know, immunogenicity, including, you know, the ability to modify the desired genes in the tissues we want and avoid the side effects in other tissues or to be able to control the timing of gene editing. So there are all these control things that we had to implement that obviously for the therapy to be accessible to the large number of patients, these need to be addressed rest first. So what if we could actually incorporate these safety in the design of all the things that we do with CRISPR from get-go, right? That way we would have made them available to patients faster. And when we talk about safety, Samira, are we talking about reducing or minimizing off-target effects or yes. the immunogenicity that you just mentioned? So for me, in my lab, one thing that has been important is to address safety in many different angles. Yeah. So we define safety of CRISPR is that when you use CRISPR as a gene therapy, you should be able to control host immune response. You should be able to control exactly in which tissue it functions and the timing of it. And in addition to that, have minimal side effects or off-target effect in the genome. And to be able to predict what type of you know, adverse reaction happens in the patients such that from the beginning and during the design, you will use a system which is less problematic in that patient population. So it's kind of like all angles of you know, safety in CRISPR. So when I started my lab, I started to tackle all of these things separately. We worked on CRISPR immunogenicity by understanding whether there is any pre-existing immune response to a streptococcus pyogenes Cas9, which is one of the most commonly used CRISPR variants, and then trying to figure out whether we can modify Cas9 protein such that there's less immune reaction to it. And then on the other side, it started to combine synthetic biology with CRISPR, 
incorporate design principle of synthetic biology to generate genetic circuits that can control CRISPR spatiotemporally. So we first focus on how we can control guide RNA from tissue-specific promoters or with microRNAs such that we can limit the CRISPR activities in the tissues or the places in body that we want. So that's a body of work in our lab. Or how to control guide RNA temporally, so how to design guide RNA such that they can be activated when you add an inducer. So these are all in the context of a spatiotemporal regulation. And very recently, with the support of Somatic Cell Genome Engineering Initiative by Common Fund, we are also using primary human cells to be able to and use an organ and a chip platform to combine CRISPR with these organ and a chip technology and be able to develop biomarkers of toxicity of CRISPR in patients. Like for instance, if off-target effect happens in the genome by CRISPR, what kind of things that a cell or a tissue will secrete? What kind of proteins or what kind of changes happen there? So we can use that in order to predict toxicity in patients if you use CRISPR-based gene therapy. So it's kind of like main aspects. And when you talk about CRISPR, are you primarily referring to Cas9 or other methods and techniques that you're developing applicable to other nucleases and other gene editing systems as well? So mostly we are focusing on CRISPR. We are not focusing on, let's say, zinc-finger nucleases or tail nucleases. Mostly the technology, like for instance, the immunogenicity part of our story, we'll focus on Cas9. Mm-hmm. Uh, the spatial temporal regulation will focus on guide RNA modulation. So it's mainly the focus in CRISPR. But the technology that we are developing for predicting toxicity should also be applicable to other gene editors rather mm. than CRISPR. Okay. And you're taking a genetic approach, but there are also groups who are looking at chemical means, right? Small molecules to modulate or uh, restrict Cas9 activity as well. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like these uh, approaches are potentially complementary. Exactly. Potentially complementary. And also one thing that I have been always, you know, in the back of my mind, when we design these experiments, I've tried as much as possible to ask if this design is applicable to clinical trials now. So uh, therefore, we have been trying to mostly in our design, use the CRISPR multifunctionality in order to regulate itself, regulate immune system, do synthetic immunomodulation using CRISPR itself, such that when it goes to FDA for evaluation, you only deal with the Inovan system and not additional regulators. So tell us now that you're in Pittsburgh and looking to take your work into more translational, more clinical settings, what's the main application or research program that you're really hoping to push forward in the coming months and years? Yeah, so I have been more and more interested in using the CRISPR for immunomodulation, which is having two main purposes. The immunomodulation to further control the host immune response to CRISPR, but also immunomodulation as a therapy itself. And one area of application that we are actively pursuing is infectious diseases, right? So COVID-19 happened, and now we are actually asking the question whether we can apply CRISPR immunomodulation to modulate host immune response to the viruses and actually be able to have a kind of like mechanism for prophylactic measure or therapeutic measures using the CRISPR there. The other area of application would be lymphomas. In lymphoma, you get genes that are up-regulated or down-regulation. And I have to mention that immunomodulation, 
we use uh, CRISPR as an epigenetic modifier rather than, you know, as a gene editor. So we are not putting permanent change in the okay. genome, but there are the transiently on and off the genes that are important immune response. So in terms of like infectious diseases, this is going to be a transient change. In terms of also lymphoma, something that we are exploring is that whether we can transiently tune the expression of genes that give, let's say, B cells a growth advantage such that we buy extra time for these patients for the, you know, therapeutic bone marrow transplantation mm. and so on. Mm. So these are the areas that I'm exploring. And I'm happy that I moved to Pittsburgh and UPMC because there's this vast area of collaboration that exists here. I mean, there are so many clinicians, both in the infectious diseases, you know, lymphoma and, you know, hematopoietic malignancies and so on that I am establishing collaboration with. Yeah. Well, at the other end of your state, Pennsylvania, uh, Carl <laughs> Junes and his team at Penn, published earlier this year, really the first safety data of CRISPR in treating cancer in a CAR-T context. How relevant was that in your thinking? I was very excited to see that data. And obviously, the first thing I was looking at was that what are the safety profile here? And the paper was about the safety. Yeah. And two things that was you know very exciting for me was that they didn't see any kind of like adverse immune reaction against yeah. these T cells. And the second thing was that in some of their, you know, DNA-seq analysis, they had found some translocation that happened in some of these edited T-cells. But once they had infused them back to patients, these cells that had translocation kind of diluted out. It was not like they got growth advantage and they created some adverse reaction. So this is good news because no matter how much we want to push the you know, safety, no off-target effect of like CRISPR, there will always be a little bit of you know, side effect there, yeah. like many other drugs that we use. Yeah. The good thing is that we should ask how much of these side effects translate into clinically significant outcome. And in this case, we didn't see much of those. Although these T-cell therapies didn't last much, and some of these patients needed to go back to get more treatment, but at least this data set the stage for the future trials and at least showed us that nothing really dramatic happened. Yeah. Yeah. You touched on immunogenicity. I think most people first picked up on this as a potential problem a couple of years ago, I believe, in the studies of Matt Porteous's group at Stanford. What's your latest feeling on that? How big a concern is the fact that uh, a good number of people apparently do have some sort of antibodies or immune response to the very therapeutic entities that we might be using? Yeah, uh, it's a very interesting notion. The antibody response exists there in some of the population, as you mentioned, Matt Porteous, and we also showed that before. How much it translates to influencing CRISPR function in vivo in human trial, we don't know yet. But what I am excited to basically explore here is that, for instance, antibody response might be more of a concern when you use CRISPR RNP when you deliver Cas9 protein. And pre-existing, let's say, T-cell memory might be an issue when you actually do a therapy with lentiviruses or AAV viruses or adenoviruses, when it actually first gets into the cells and the components of the proteins that now express under MHC class one. So that's why one of the parts of the interest in my group is to really go through these different HLA haplotypes that exist in different populations and see if we can modify 
identify these epitopes in the Cas9 according to different HLA serotypes and develop these less immunogenic variants that can be less of an issue when you apply them in human for clinical trial. So to answer your question, I would say we don't know (laughs) the answer, but we are trying to think about ways to mitigate that. One version is the concurrent application of immunosuppressive drugs that we definitely need to consider when we do CRISPR therapy. One version is to develop less immunogenic variants that we are interested to look into. And the other version is actually screening the patients before they actually get the CRISPR therapy. And somehow at some point I envision we might want to have a library of different Cas9 proteins from even different species that you might want to pick and choose and match in patients. I don't think that this will be a hindrance in clinical application of the CRISPR, but obviously an important matter to consider in the application of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the last few minutes of the program, Samira, I'd love to catch up with you about some of these other activities, um, very public facing activities that you've been involved in. I know um, for the last few years, you've been very interested in thinking creatively of ways to improve public understanding and engagement around issues of CRISPR biology and genome editing. One of those initiatives is a documentary, a full-length documentary that you've been working on with Cody Sheehy, a talented filmmaker in Arizona. I believe the working title is The Human Game. Bring us up to speed. What's the main pretext of the film and when do you think we'll be able to see the final cut? Yeah, The Human Game is a documentary film uh, Cody Sheehy and I started working on three years ago. started with the idea that technologies such as CRISPR are revolutionary and can influence many aspects of our lives and have many different societal and ethical implications. But the film transformed after the first gene-edited babies were announced in China. And after that, we started rethinking what should we really focus on. And the film now has transformed into exploring really how us as scientists will actually push forward science And uh, what really we need to understand in order to make the scientific discoveries beneficial for humankind, and what are the angles that might influence some errors that might happen along the way. It also focuses on the really cultural pretext of China versus U.S., and as a way for us to explore and examine how different you know, nations, different countries, different cultural and moral values will influence the decisions to go forward with these technologies and what we need as a global community to consider in order to safeguard our future, but also push the science and technology advancement forward. We hope that we, through this film, will be able to examine some of these questions and bring up more questions. So the idea is actually simulate more questions. You had the extraordinary opportunity to meet Her Jiankui about a month before the whole CRISPR baby uh, debacle exploded across the headlines. What was that like? What do you remember from that meeting? The meeting was obviously off the record. We were in China to film for the human game. Mm. And like out of blue, I just got an email from the PR of Mm. JK. I was in touch with a PR a few years ago over another project. So I knew him remotely. I got the email 
And he said that he was working with a scientist in China and he wanted to collaborate with our documentary film. And he also mentioned that this scientist was working on editing human embryo, obviously nothing about creating babies, but editing human embryo. So you imagine receiving such an email from a PR person that was working with a Chinese scientist with human embryo editing was quite interesting for us. We set up a meeting with them. We met JK and the PRs, both two different PRs. And at that point, they introduced us with the idea of human embryo editing, non-viable human embryo editing, and show us some preclinical data of the human embryo editing. And the idea was that we have done this safely in lots of embryos, and we are envisioning to move forward Mm -hmm. with clinical trial at some point next year. So after the meeting was just like, oh my God, I mean, this is interesting. What would happen next? Are we actually getting to babies? But, you know, that was something that we wanted to explore further. We talked to the team afterwards, so many occasions we wanted to get involved. And then the story happened that we realized, oh my God. Of course, he was uh, quickly sequestered from from public view. So, uh, and of course, is now. Yes. Finally, Samira, you have some other kind of crowdsourcing or ideas for improving public engagement. Briefly, what are your hopes for that? So we filmed lots of people over the last three years. And over the last three years, I realized that the power of storytelling is massive in bringing in people together. And Cody and I started to think about a bigger initiative called Tomorrow Life with the aim of bringing scientists and a stakeholder together with filmmaker. So we collaboratively can explore bigger scientific questions with the help of filmmaking and explore their societal and ethical implications. So we developed Tomorrow Life Initiative, which is hopefully coming up online and next week with more information. It's www.tomorrow.life in which you get more information about how we can connect scientists and filmmakers for bigger questions and how we can use that platform for public engagement with science and technology as scientific community to have a more inclusive and expansive conversation about these topics. Well, Samira Kiani, thanks so much and best of luck with these fascinating initiatives, Tomorrow Life, The Human Game, and your bread and butter, your research (laughs) developing safe forms of CRISPR for immunotherapy and other clinical facets of genome editing. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for joining us. And thanks to my team for putting this podcast together. Thanks to Horizon for their support. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll have another podcast in this mini-series for you very soon. But for now, thanks for joining me. I'm Kevin Davis for the CRISPR Journal. See you next time.